there's always been a big backyard connected to Wildside West. But you couldn't always go back there. There was nothing in that garden. It was just nothing there when I first came here. This is Billy Hayes. She's the current owner of the San Francisco Lesbian Bar. You used to have to go down steps to get to the garden. Nobody could go down there unless she let you go. She's talking about Pat, the original owner of Wildside West. A lot of people didn't go downstairs because Pat didn't want them down there because she's still working on the garden. If she knew, you should say, yeah, go ahead. It's other people should say, no, you can't go down there. Billy inherited the bar from Pat, who passed back in 2010. But Pat's legacy looms large over the whole place. She was like our mother, our aunt, our mentor, our daddy, whatever. She was there for us. Oh, my goodness. How to describe Pat? Well, let, let, let me tell you how Pat would describe Pat. Pat, she, she was short, five foot two. Uh, she had long hair, like, uh, like to her breast. Um, she has a big, huge nose, and she always accented on that nose. She put on like a, a cone hat, you know, like for a, for a witch. She liked being a witch. She was always loving to smoke marijuana, and she was always laughing and honking and picking up instruments and wanting to play. And she, No, she wasn't reserved. She was an entertainer. When Pat and her bar first moved to this spot in Bernal Heights, they didn't get the warmest of welcomes. Way back when, when they moved here, like, what, it was 73? 77. 77. Yeah, the neighborhood wasn't too welcoming, in a way. We had two beautiful, picturesque windows in this beautiful Victorian. This building used to be like a store, so the windows were really big. But the very first day we were there, we got bricks thrown through the windows because we were gay and we were women and they did not want a lesbian bar to be there at all. They threw some toilet stuff through here, not the tubs and stuff, but they did throw some stuff through the windows. There used to be two windows. There's not windows there anymore. So they had to board them up after that. And they said, get out of here, but passes. Uh, thank you for the planters, but I'm not leaving. So, yeah. so I'm going to make a garden. So, so that's how I started. That's how Pat started decorating the garden with the eclectic art that fills it today. Yeah, you like that toilet behind you. The, yeah, so, <laughs> I mean, it sounds like we're in the bathroom, we're not. So um, a lot of the stuff in the garden was stuff that was maybe thrown through the window in the front a long time ago. Um, people would leave the, the shit in front of the door. So she started building it up and everybody started putting plants back there. And, and then she used the porcelain stuff and then just started making art out of it and putting plants in them. So that's how the garden started. Everyone that knew Pat describes her as an artist. She had a great eye. She would like to paint and she decorated her, her eclectic. We called it eclectic. Sometimes it was just junk, but she would organize the junk in the backyard. It looked like art. Pat's collecting and decorating turned the garden into something truly magical. Nowadays, everyone brings their drinks down there to hang out. It's a level below the bar itself, so you take the back door, down the wraparound wooden staircase, and then you're in it. And so I found out when I was in my house, and I was starting to get like. Trees, plants, and pieces of lattice divide the garden into smaller nooks, like restaurant booths, but made out of shrubbery and garden furniture. A succulent grows out of a ceramic urinal, 
The headlights of an old car are mounted on the wooden staircase. Mannequin legs hang artfully from trees. And when night falls, the garden is illuminated by neon rope lights wrapped around trees and woven through the lattice. It's hard to imagine Wild Side West without the garden back in the day. That's what makes this spot so special. I always remember this place with the kick-ass garden. And I was like, oh, the old dyke bar with the kick-ass garden. This is Heather. She's been bartending there for about seven years. To clarify, as a bartender, she doesn't actually go up and down the stairs to serve people. Oh, God, no. I've had people be like, oh, can I get it? And I'm like, "Uh uh-huh, sure. I'll be back in three hours. (laughs) But aside from that, the yard has been a blessing. Because it's so beautiful, for one. And also, like, during COVID and everything, people being outside, it's been really great because you can still have... You know, there's not 100 people inside the small bar. Um, So that's been really good. And it's just, you know, nobody has a garden like this, especially in this city. This is Cruising, a podcast about the last lesbian bars in the U.S. My name is Sarah Gabrielli, and I'm traveling to each one of them with my two friends and chosen family. Stop number nine, Wild Side West. Pat Ramsare, the original owner of Wild Side West, was an incredibly private person. So we ran into a bit of trouble trying to piece her story together. She never exuberated happiness. She never exuberated sadness. She had everything inside of her. This is a longtime patron of Wild Side West. For various reasons, we are not using her real name. So we're going to call her Donna. Donna knew Pat for about 40 years. Nobody knew how old she was. Nobody, she, she never talked about her, about herself whatsoever. Never. But Billy, the current owner of Wild Side West, did know Pat's age. She says Pat was 75 when she passed. 75 years young. So she was born in 1934 and would have been about 30 when she first opened the bar. Billy knew Pat well probably better than anyone else, but still not that well. She never did really say when she came out. I didn't really ask her about that. I didn't get that deep with her because that was her personal stuff, and I didn't want to you know, think I was trying to snoop in her stuff. So she told me little bits and pieces. Billy can only theorize as to how Pat became so private. She was married before, and she, I guess the guy that she'd married to, I think he was pretty much abusive. So it's possible that's why Pat had trouble letting people in. And I think it might have been after she divorced her husband because he was so abusive that she just started living that life. No one really knows the story behind the bar's original opening. But here's what they do know. Pat grew up on farmland in Oregon and moved to the Bay Area in the 60s. Pat and her partner Nancy at the time were big party people. Pat loved socialize, and uh, they drink beer all day long, both of them. Pat and Nancy originally opened the bar together. They separated not long after, but remained friends, and Nancy continued to help around the bar. So their first spot opened in Oakland in 1962. It was just called Wild Side then, after the Jane Fonda movie Walk on the Wild Side. 
1968, they moved to North Beach and added the West to the end of their name. There, Pat created a hideaway, a safe spot for all kinds of women, like the ones getting off work at Big Al's, a nearby strip club. And all the women that was doing stripping, they would come in and come in there, and it was a refuge for them. They'd come in, have their drinks, not be bothered by the men or whatever. And so that's where they got away. And while women could buy drinks and own a bar in the 60s, it was illegal for Pat and Nancy to bartend. That's what I heard. And Uncle Bill, this guy named Uncle Bill, that he was real good friends with him. He was in the military. He got out. I think he did a lot of the bartending for him. The law prohibiting women from bartending in the state of California was overturned in 1971. And in 1977, Pat and Nancy moved to Wildside West's current location in Bernal Heights. This is the spot with the kick-ass garden. When they moved, Pat and Nancy brought the old bar, the physical wooden structure, with them, partially because they needed it. They wanted the bar because they didn't have a bar here. This used to be a bakery and a child care center, which I say now it's a built child care center, but that's okay. But it used to be, but the bar, I think she just wanted to bring the bar because she didn't have a bar. And so it's a beautiful bar. But they also wanted to preserve the memories that came with it. Janice Job and Bob Billenhoff used to hang on that bar to drink. So that, that came with it, you know. So there's their spirits are there. Yeah. So they just put it on two trucks and brought it over, over the Bay Bridge. The space today is still filled with decor carefully chosen by Pat. The walls and ceilings are painted a deep red and lined with posters, paintings, and a large ornate mirror. There's a piano in the corner. And on top of that is the bottom half of a mannequin covered in bottle caps, a straw hat, and a skeleton dog. To be fair, we were visiting in October, but it was pretty hard to differentiate between Halloween decor and all of Pat's unique collector's items. She would either buy it because, you know, the artists were poor. She was an artist, so she would help them out so that they could have money. So that's how they got half of the stuff. And the other stuff was probably... Uh, collector stuff. I mean, we got stuff here like Jack in the Box and all that stuff she probably collected during the years. Just put it up here. This uh, barbershop chair, it's so old. It's been here since she's had this bar open. So, yeah. And then the shoes, these are all supposed to be her shoes. I'm not sure, but they were all supposed to be her old shoes. And then she just started putting, it's an artist, so she started putting them on the fireplace. So they still stay that way. And sometimes, as we mentioned earlier, Pat would just repurpose, well, junk. Here's Donna again. I mean, if you were throwing away something, if you were redoing a room in your house, she wanted whatever you were tossing out. Rod iron uh, bed frames and stuff she put up on the fence and then let a plant grow up on it. The first time Donna stepped foot in Wildside West was in 1970. This was at the old location in North Beach. Back then, women's bars were particularly difficult to find. They weren't necessarily rare. They were just discreet. You had to know what you were doing to get in. It's funny, and it's like, how did you find the bar? Gay bars are never marked. Like, there was never a name on the outside. Any lesbian bar you went to in the early, early goings, they never had their name on the outside. Donna asked all of her gay friends until finally someone pointed her in the direction of Wild Side West. So I just made my way over to that section of town 
and just started walking up and down the street. And so I asked these people, I said, where's the Wild Side West? They said, right there, next block, like about the third door up. So I, I go cross over, I go up the block, and like third door up, and the whole cover of the door of the bar was a big, huge leather, heavy, and I mean heavy, like really thick, heavy leather curtain. Like it was like it took all my strength to push it to the side so I could go in. Anyway, I pushed it to the side, and I walked in. It was pitch dark. But I could hear all the voices, and I saw a little stage in the background, and somebody was playing the Congo drums. And I thought, oh, this has to be it, you know. It was almost like breaking in. And I think she did that purposely. She just didn't want people falling into her bar thinking they could come and have a drink there. It was a special place for girls to go and have drinks. Donna grew up in Texas, but began dreaming of California at six years old. I remember because my six-year-old neighbor, she had her aunt and uncle, and they came and they had a yellow Chevy Corvette convertible. They got out. They had on orange shorts. They had on a turquoise shirt. They had on big yellow sunglasses. They had, like, plaid pants on. They, like, had all this color, and, you know, they had a convertible. It looked like Candyland had just arrived. It looks so fantastic. And they had California plates on their car. And from that day, she knew Californians were her type of people. Yeah, six years old because they had color. You know, they had they looked vivacious. They look alive. They dressed totally different from anybody had ever seen. Nobody in Texas wore any kind of bright, fun, you know, flamboyant colors. They were all, you know, kind of drabby. She had no idea she was gay at the time just that she was different. But around six years later, as a preteen, Donna started having these feelings. She knew she wanted to kiss a girl. There was no way I could do anything, you know, in that little tiny town. They'd take you out and shoot you. You know, they just would. You know, and they'd always think they're doing it for your good. In her small town in Texas, being gay was just not an option. There was one kid at Donna's school who was somewhat out of the closet, Mel. But I remember that uh, Mel's uh, parents sent him uh, to uh, a mental hospital. And so that was the outcome that, that kind of really made me scared was if you're gay, you know, your parents can take control of you and send you away. So um, I didn't show any tendencies of being gay when I was in high school. I just didn't date any guys. I just I had lots of girlfriends for friends. They all had boyfriends. And I always act like I was still looking for the right guy. But, yeah, I was living a lie. As a teenager, Donna started to push the boundaries of traditional gender norms. I wanted blue jeans like my brother wore. So I went to uh, JCPenney. And so I knew that voice pants had length. So I was tall. So I, I knew I could get them long enough. I didn't want those damn pedal pushers or things that came up past your calf or whatever they were called. So I went to the store to buy a pair of blue jeans. And they wouldn't sell them to me. So I made the sales clerk, this woman, old frumpy lady, call my father, who was head of the phone company. And he had a lot of clout. And he told them to sell her, sell my daughter whatever she wants. But don't get the wrong idea. Her dad wasn't actually trying to be supportive. Oh, no, no. Dad didn't do that uh, uh, to make me happy. 
he just he just did it to give it whatever she wants go away. My father barely ever talked to me growing up. He didn't have anything to say to me whatsoever. My, I had an older brother, and you know he, he was the apple of my father's eye. And uh, I was just supposed to, you know, take typing classes and get married. That was the only thing that was expected to do. And her relationship with her mother wasn't much better. She knew I was gay, even though I had never kissed a girl yet. So um, she packed me off to some school that she enrolled me in. She had my bags packed and she wanted me gone. This was about three days after Donna graduated high school. Her mom packed her bags and sent her off to fashion merchandising college in Dallas. Donna was 18. I was wearing blue jeans and T-shirts and dressing like a, a little boy. And I felt great, but people would uh, look at me and spit right at the tip of my toes. Just look at me and, and discuss and just spit because uh, I looked androgynous. In Dallas... Donna was working at a clothing store and living with a coworker named Kathy. Kathy was straight, but very cool. She was from California. One day, Kathy dropped the news. She was going back to Cali. And I said, not without me. I thought, oh, this is it. Here's my ticket. Boy, here it is. Boom, boom, boom. She had a Corvette. And she said, yeah, you can come to California with me. That's perfectly fine. She said, but you can't bring a suitcase or anything because there was no room for a suitcase. So I put everything I own into a pillowcase because I had to be soft because I had to put it in back of the seat I was sitting in and then flap the seat back. That's all the things I own, but I didn't really care. Donna told her friends Tommy and Greg about the move. They were both drag queens and worked in the display department of the clothing store. And they said, oh, we want to come, we want to come. And Kathy just loved Tommy and Greg. So Kathy said, sure. So these two queens pack up a Chevy Nova station wagon, and they put everything they own inside, everything they own. In fact, they had a vacuum cleaner tied to the top, you know, just like a queen. Can you imagine moving and must have a vacuum cleaner? And just like that, Donna had made it out of Texas. We took uh, something like three months to get to California because we— Went to all the parts, went all the way up to Montana, went to all these places. But eventually, they arrived in San Francisco. I was 20 when I arrived. Me in a car full of queens uh, who ran like hell to get out of Texas. It was this yellow, uh, spiffy Carvette, uh, followed by a, like a 1964 Chevy Nova with queens, and they would always be waving their peacock feathers out the back of their car. So we were quite motley looking coming out to California. Sandra thought they would make quite a scene pulling up into town. During the course of On the Road, I brought I bought like a purple fringe jacket, like in Wyoming, and I bought like knee boots that came up to my knees from Taos, New Mexico. Tom and Greg had bought tons of jewelry. They had it around their necks, silver and turquoise. I had all these beads on. I had this big Bat Masterson hat on. It was black. My hair was bleach blonde from the sun. But this wasn't Texas. Unique outfits weren't going to turn heads in San Francisco. That was just part of the scenery. And nobody even looked at me. Nobody even saw the tall six-foot girl 
thin as a rail with a purple fringe jacket on. They never, they didn't even think that was, that was out of place. They never noticed me. They didn't look at me and it just blew my mind. Whereas in Texas, everywhere I went, people looked at me, glared at me, stared at me. You know, they just looked at me like I'm, I'm the weird one. But here in California, San Francisco, nobody even noticed me. It was fantastic. It was like I'm at home. Everybody else was, you know, wearing Led Zeppelin and, you know, they were all eating acid in Golden Gate Park, which was two blocks away. It was, you know, still like, you know, hot on the whole um, experience. They didn't glare at me or look at me. And I felt I felt like I was at home. Finally, I could be who I wanted to be. And nobody was going to even look at me or judge me. It was like fantastic feeling. She arrived in San Francisco June of 1970, just before the first ever gay day parade. All my gay guys got all dressed up with their feather boas and all this kind of stuff. But while Donna had left behind the hate and prejudice of her hometown, it took her a while to shake that feeling that being gay was inherently dangerous. I said to them, don't go, they're going to shoot you. I, I, I thought it was going to be like one of those things, they want all the gay people in one place and they're just going to kill us. I mean, you know, being gay growing up in Texas, like, it was frightening, totally frightening. She eventually realized she didn't have to worry anymore, at least not for her life. It took me a long time uh, when I came out to San Francisco to really kind of get comfortable but when you when you came out here, nobody looked at you because everybody else out here was even weirder than you were. At first, Donna, Tommy, Greg, and Kathy were all living in Kathy's parents' house in Los Altos. And Kathy was showing us, driving us up from Los Altos, driving us all over town, showing us the city. Uh, she liked to, to eat mushrooms. We were all eating mushrooms, and so we were just having a, a wonderful time. But Kathy's parents weren't thrilled with their new house guests, so the four of them moved out. Back then, you could get in a five-bedroom, two-story Victorian home in San Francisco for like $260 a month. And Kathy, bless her heart, she was the only one who went to work, and so she um, got a good job, and she really wanted to keep the apartment. So basically... Kathy took care of the rent, <laughs> and Tom and Greg and I just went out and explored and, and loved San Francisco. It was during this time that Donna discovered Wild Side West at its old location in North Beach. Pat was behind the bar, and there was a bunch of women sitting at the bar, and I was scared to death. My teeth were chattering. I was 20 years old, but since I was six feet tall, I knew I could pass for 21. I know young Donna sounds tough. But she was still human. She mentioned her teeth chattering a couple of times when I talked to her. I asked if this was just a figure of speech, but it wasn't. When it comes to intimacy, you know, I would, my teeth would start to chatter because I, I, I wasn't really good at getting this closeness in. It's uh, true that my teeth would chatter when I would uh, get ready to be intimate and physically close. Uh, to a girl. That stopped after about 25 years, though. But back when Donna first found Wild Side West, she was young, 20 years old, and she had just traveled 2,000 miles away from everything she had ever known. What Donna needed in that moment was a home. So I had a beer, and um, 
then I felt like I was at home for the rest of my life. The bar was our family. That's how in the early 70s, you know, we met. And that's where we socialized. One thing you should know about Donna is that she's quite the charmer. Oh, my God. The wild girl back then. That was Billy again, the current bar owner. She, she was good looking. So, yeah, I mean, I didn't have any feelings for her, but uh, the women were crazy about her. So she she knew how to play the game. I mean, it was, yeah. And they would just fall over and stuff. And we just laughed because every time I'd go somewhere and run into her, she would be with a different woman. And I said, oh, where's such and such? She goes, shh, be quiet. Don't say nothing. I said, oh, okay, I'm sorry. Women loved Donna and Donna loved women. You know, um, I've been fortunate. I, I look good. You know, I was androgynous. Uh, I was vivacious. People attracted to me. I like being the center of attention. We just ride down the street and people would say, hey, I want to marry you. My thing was I love to walk into a room with 350 people. Usually they were all dykes. Uh, this was a big party at one time. 350 women and not know one. That would be like the best thing for me. I would absolutely love and adore it. And it was at a party kind of like that where Donna met a whole community of other attractive, fun-loving women. They all lived out on Stinson Beach, a tiny beach town north of the city. The population of Stinson Beach at that time was like something like 45, and, and like about 30 of them were gay women. Less than a year after Donna arrived in San Francisco, one of the women invited her to come live with them. So I moved out there. One of the gay girls gave me um, a corner of a room in her house. And she said, here, put your bed over there in the corner and you can live here. So I live there. Life on Stinson Beach was romantic. We went to the beach every day. We made sandcastles. We had parties on the beach. We lived on the beach. There was a woman named Lainey. She was kind of the head tribe leader. She was an older lesbian, and she would have, like, these funny parades. She probably was half nuts, but, you know, you didn't really realize it. She would have these parades of us marching down the street, carrying, like, uh, little instruments and blowing them, and it was a real celebration. And they all somehow managed to live in harmony, Donna says. We didn't think too much about where we were going to get. Oh, I know. We got food stamps. We got food stamps um, from the state of California, which is pretty good. And we were all young and we weren't sure what we wanted to do with our lives. We just were so excited to have a bunch of women around and be free to kiss and dance women. It was another year or two before Donna got a stable job in San Francisco. She started making rock star shirts and spent about eight successful years in the clothing business. And then she got another gig. I was uh, rolling marijuana joints for a living. For years, people would say, what are you doing for a living? I said, I'm rolling joints for a living. They would just laugh their butts off. I, I mean, I find it hard to believe, too. Plus, I find it hard to believe that I had to be there at 9 o'clock in the morning. Okay, I know this doesn't sound like a stable career, but it was actually a 9 to 5. It was called San Francisco Auto Repair. It no longer exists. And the guy who owned it was a humongous deadhead. You know, Jerry Garcia and deadhead. He was humongous fan of the deadhead. And I think he actually knew people in the band. And I would roll joints like from nine to five with an hour lunch. I mean, I rolled all the time. 
I don't know where they were going, if they were going to the to the van or what, but something was happening. Nobody could believe I was rolling joints for a living until I would just pass them out at the bar like, you know, here, have some, have some, have some. Then everybody knew it. And Jerry either didn't notice or didn't mind that Donna was skimming a few joints off the top. People used to ask me, how many joints are in a lid? And I would say to them, you mean how many joints does Jerry get out of a lid? Because say I rolled a, say I rolled a lid and I got like 35 joints. Uh, he would only get 30 because I would not count the five that two for the bartender, one for Pat. Then in 1998, Donna put her name in a lottery for a chance to work for the city. She was pretty reluctant at first. A bunch of friends of mine say, oh, they're going to have a fair for city jobs. Come on down. We'll go to this fair and everybody put their name in the wheelbarrow and you might get a city job. And of course, I say, I'm not doing that. You must be out of your mind. People here in San Francisco, those city workers, they're lazy. They don't do anything, blah, 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 never get anything done. And so I went down to the fair with my friends and they all filled out a card and I'll filled out a card. And I just stood in line and sort of went along with them. They said, hey, you're not filling out a card. They shove a pencil in my hand. They shove the card in my hand. I didn't want to do it. They made me do it. And I threw my card in. And out of 5,000 people, Donna's name was picked. I get this notice that says, you have been selected for a job for the city of San Francisco. And I went, ooh, because I'm like 48 years old now. And I'm thinking, hmm, I got shit. No, I got nothing. I got nothing. And I was thinking about health care. That's what I was thinking. Like, what are you going to do, you know, for health care for the rest of your life? So I thought, OK, maybe I'll do it. But they wanted her to come in for an interview with the Department of Parking and Traffic. And I went, no, 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 anywhere but that. Send me to the water department. Send me, I have a street department. Send me anywhere, but don't send me to the parking department. (laughs) They said, why? And I said, because I've been arrested twice for outstanding parking tickets. I had a a little red MG midget, which fit perfectly at a fire hydrant. (laughs) You know, back in the day when I was a kid here in San Francisco running around. They would throw you into a paddy wagon and take you down. Yep. And every time, twice, twice it happened to me. Everyone at the bar knew about Donna's parking tickets. They were the ones that had to bail her out. I went to the bar and I said to Pat and Uncle Bill, everybody was sitting in the backyard. And I said, you're not going to believe this. The city wants me to get it. Come to work for them, the parking department. They all rolled, rolled off. They thought it was hilarious. But the city didn't seem to care about Donna's record. Then I went for the interview, and I still was hoping maybe they could give me a different department. I said, because I've been arrested and thrown in jail for outstanding parking tickets. And then he reached in the drawer and got this big stamp, and he stamped. He said, okay, there you go. You got the job. Perfect. You're just what we want. So Donna went from rolling joints to giving parking tickets, or at least pretending to. Uh, I got the job when I was 48. And it came in underneath this unbelievable contract that the new mayor was having because they hadn't hired for city employees in 30 years. And I had like what you call a golden umbrella. And I got everything top notch, way to go, all years for the rest of your life. Boom, here you go. So I worked 19 years and I retired when I was, uh, I didn't even actually want to retire. I had so much fun on the street. And Donna fit right in with her idea of a typical San Francisco city worker. Remember, 
They don't do anything, blah, 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 never get anything done. Part of what she loved about her job was that she didn't actually have to do it. I didn't give tickets. I mean, half of the people that were, like the delivery guy, Mark, I'd be waving my tag book at him. I said, get out of the street, man. Everybody thinks I'm giving you a ticket. I said, hurry up. And I said, I'll see you at the bar in about 30 minutes. Bye. Get out of here. Everything in Donna's life kind of changed around that same time. Right after she got hired by the city, Donna also met her current partner, Patricia. Donna calls her PK. Same month I got the job, as I say. I got the job and the girl all in the same month. They met at a 4th of July party. Very beautiful place, sitting on like water and all this stuff and very eclectic kind of a garden and everything. We're sitting in the garden and all of a sudden PK comes walking right down the stairs and I'm sitting right at the bottom of the stairs, a couple of feet off and she comes down and she sits right on my lap. That's how I met her. At this point in her life, Donna was spending a lot of time at Wildside West. I went to the bar Every night, every single night. I mean, sometimes I'd be dating the girl and she'd say, you know, you have to choose between me and the bar. But but the bar was too big of a social place for me to ever give up for a woman. But with Patricia, it was different. She made Donna want to settle down. Well, you know, those days are gone for me. I don't go in at all, really. A grocery shop at the corner. So I go down and say hello to Billy at least once a month, and everybody says hi to me. It's kind of nice. But even though Donna herself doesn't need the bar anymore, she's still glad to know it's open for future generations. Yes, 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 yes. Because girls, you can go online. You can type in lesbian bars. They'll say San Francisco. Good. They have a place where they can come through the door, and they're still coming through the door. You know, so that's really, really necessary. It's just fantastic. She's particularly grateful to Billy for keeping the doors open after Pat passed. I mean, that's a big responsibility. Passing on a bar, you have to order the beer, you have to hire the people, you have to manage the place, you have to open it up, you have to close it up, you have to see that it's clean, all that kind of stuff. My God, what a huge responsibility. And I'm just so happy that Pat got someone in her life and that we all benefited from it and that we still have the Wild Side West. It's still the biggest gift of of all. Uh, Billy has done an outstanding job with keeping the Wild Side West centric, open door for anybody, and especially lesbians. Billy had never worked at Wild Side West, or any bar for that matter, before inheriting it but she was pretty well equipped to run a business. In the military, I was logistics, so I knew about inventories and everything else and know how financial stuff runs because I do it all the time. So that was not hard. Billy joined the military in her early 20s. I didn't like factory work. I was like, this is not for me. And so I went down to the Army recruiting place in Detroit and I said, I want to sign up. And I came, what do you want to do? I said, I want to be like Private Benjamin. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> be like I'm mean, Benjamin. So they said, "Here." I said, "I want a desk job." They said, "Okay, you'll be supply sergeant logistics." I said, "That'll work fine." Well, in supply and logistics, you have to do everything. You do everything everybody does in the military. This was in the '80s when you definitely couldn't be openly gay in the army. We never did talk about it, and then I knew two girls that got kicked out because they took her in and said, 
you tell us who else is gay or we're going to call your mother and father. And so she freaked out and she told on a bunch of people. I was part of that group, I think, but they never came towards me or anything. I never, never had a problem with it. It was through the military that Billy landed in San Francisco. Towards the end of her service in the late 80s, Billy was stationed at Presidio. And of course, Billy eventually ended up at Wildside West. She first went with an ex-girlfriend of hers. We pull up in the car, we walk into the front door, and it's all dark. Can't see really in here because back in the day, they didn't keep all the lights on. It was really dark, and it was really wild back then. And then she met Pat. She'd watch you for a while to see if you're okay, but then she would, uh, you know, she'd warm up to you. She always sat at the end of the bar, the one over by the window. She would sit there at the end of the bar drinking her hot toddies all the time. And I would sit at the bar and have a beer sometimes, or if I came with my friends. But she'd always look at me and just stare at me. And then I'd look at her and she'd turn away. And then I'd look back at her. She'd be staring at me again. Finally, Billy decided to approach Pat. So we sat there and started talking. So she goes, are you a police officer? And I said, what? And she goes, I said, is that why you stare at me? And she goes, yeah. She said, I thought you were police. Then Billy offered to buy Pat a drink. She goes, oh, you're going to buy me a drink? I'm the owner. And I said, yeah. I said, where I'm from, I buy people drinks, even if you're the owner. I said, oh, she said, oh, they usually want to ask me for a drink. I usually don't get. I said, oh, my God, that's bad. I said, no, I'm not that way. I just, can I buy you a drink? And she goes, sure. This surprised Pat. According to Donna, Pat would never buy someone else a drink. I drank in her bar for 35 to 40 years. And she did not offer free drinks no matter the 49ers won, our baseball team won, or everybody was celebrating something very exciting. It just didn't happen. You'd sometimes think, oh, she's going to surprise us, but bless her heart. Pat was very frugal. She was a love, don't get me wrong. But uh, you could always see, like, in her uh, vest pockets, she would have rubber bands, anything. She, she'd see a nail on the street. She's like, you know, had hundreds of thousands of dollars, but she would pick up the nail and put it in her pocket because she thought she, she might need it. She kept around this old clunker of a cash register. Antique, like uh, early 1900s. And it took a lot of power to press down on it to open it up. And Pat lived upstairs, and she liked it like that so that she could hear the cash register upstairs. Donna thinks she liked to hear the palpable sounds of the bar making money. Exactly, exactly. If, if there was like a good packed house in there and she wanted to hear that ka-ching all the time. We used to laugh and say, I think she drilled a hole in the floor and she spied on us. That was a, a very common thing that was said. But Billy was closer to Pat than anyone else. So we asked, did Pat ever buy her a drink? Oh, I don't make the other lesbians mad, but yes, she did buy me a drink. <laughs> she figured out that I really didn't want anything. I was just somebody that really cared about her. And as Pat learned to trust Billy, the pair grew closer. We had a connection. I don't know what it was. We had a, a really deep connection. It was, I think somebody asked me one time, after she passed away, one of the older ladies said, when you her love her, I said, no, I said, she's a lot older than me. And everybody always said that Pat had an a eight sense that she was, she had a, she could sense who you are and what you were. She knew people who were using her, who wasn't, and who was her friends and who were not. And so she just, I guess me and her started talking and then just, you know, kind of have a little bit of same background. She's, you know, came from farmland. I came from farmland. And so we just talked and stuff, got to know each other. According to Donna, 
Billy and Pat were alike in a lot of other ways as well. She's like Pat. She doesn't share much about herself. Like Pat, Billy values her privacy. Billy had this expression when I'd say, hey, Billy, what do you do for a living? And she, Billy would always say, if I tell you, I'd have to kill you. And there was, you know, and there was something about that, that you, that you felt like she really meant it. We can confirm Billy also wouldn't tell us what she did for a living in between the military and the bar. And I'm sure that Aunt Pat loved that lie, you know. When Pat first got sick, she kept it really quiet. Pat had actually battled cancer twice. She never let anybody know. You know, she just did it on her own. I, I think I took her to chemo. That's the first time she ever asked me for anything. And I'd known her like 25 years. She said, I need a ride to chemo. And I was like, I didn't even know you had cancer. You know what I mean? And she didn't want to talk about it, so you didn't talk about it. So I took her to her chemo. For the last few years of her life, Pat rarely left her apartment above the bar. She had emphysema. She'd come down when nobody was here, but she wouldn't come down when people were here. She stopped doing that. She didn't want anybody to see her with the, you know, the oxygen tank on and all that. But, yeah. And then last year or so, she couldn't get out of bed hardly and stuff like that. Yeah, she couldn't go out because she could barely breathe. Everything had overtaken her and she was on oxygen. But the people closest to Pat would head upstairs to visit. Maybe she'd have a half a beer and she'd always want to smoke. And we were always going, hey, Pat, you got an oxygen tank right here. We could blow up. I don't care. Yeah, you don't care, but we're sitting here. But she didn't care. And you weren't going to tell her no. She she took off her mask and, and wanted to smoke. Pat was with it until the end. She never lost her wit. We'd have to call the ambulance every week or two to get her to take the hospital. And if they go by and then it stops, she said, well, my taxi went by. Why did they go by? And it's like, oh, my God, Pat. So she said such a humor, you know. Billy ended up moving in with Pat for the last six months of her life or so. And I'd come up here and stay with her and, you know, help her to transition over to her other life. So we hung out, did stuff, and just talked to her and stayed with her and stuff. At this point, Billy had been living in East Bay about 15 miles from the bar. She bought a house there in 1998. Because I was getting too wild. I was getting into a lot of stuff. And I needed to, you know, quit drinking and just straighten up for a while. So wasn't it bad stuff, but, you know, the body needed to rest. But when Pat got sick, Billy started coming back around the bar to take care of her. Just make sure everything was going okay. Because she still had to have money coming in. And the bar was her main source. So I just make sure she had money to pay for her bills, pay her, you know, pay for the bartenders, pay, you know, uh, medical stuff like that. So it made it easy for her. The stuff we didn't tell her about that she didn't need to worry about and all that. So They never talked about Billy taking over the bar. They never really talked about the fate of the bar at all. Aside from one conversation. She asked me one time when we were down there years ago, she's like, you know, who would you give this bar to if it was yours, if something happened to you? I said, you give it to somebody you think would take care of it, whoever wanted, you know, cherish it. I said, you got a gold mine here. I said, I said, don't you know what you've done? I said, what you got? And she goes, no. She's like, well, I said, you got a gold mine here. And it didn't gold mine anything rich, but this place, people love this place. I said, I would keep it the same way it is. And she said, would you change anything? I said, no. Why would you change it? Why would you fix something that isn't, that's not broke? Maybe Pat always knew she'd leave the bar to Billy. But if not, I'm sure that answer was exactly what she needed to hear. Then, one day, towards the end of Pat's life, 
an estate executor came by to talk to Billy. She's like, you know, uh, she's going to leave it to you. And I'm like, what? Like, what did you say? And so we're, we're sitting at the bar here. I said, no. She goes, yeah. I said, because I started crying. I said, no. I said, uh, are you serious? She goes, yeah. Pat passed away in 2010. And of course, there was a huge memorial at the bar. We had about 300 people come and it was packed in the bar. We had to open the side doors, so emergency doors, and because the garden was packed. This was packed. I mean, you could walk, you could hardly walk around, but we had to make sure it was fire department. And the people were outside standing. At the memorial, Billy noticed a group of older women sitting in a corner. They're like grannies. I mean, it's 80, 70, I don't granny, I should say that. I'm getting close there. Um, <laughs> they're sitting in a corner and nobody knew who they were. And everybody was asking. I was even asking, like, who are these women? You know, they're, they're older and are they Pat's family? Are they, did they knew her back then? So nobody knew. So finally one of them came up and I said, oh, yeah, who are you? And she goes, oh, we used to be the strippers at the bar, you know, by near the bar. So we would go to Pat's bar to get away from the men and just have so we could relax and have a drink and, you know, not be bothered. It was a crazy full circle moment. Billy had always heard about them, the strippers from the original Wild Side West location. And now they were back and in their 80s. So they had came to pay their respects. And they, they came, they said she protected them big time, yeah. Billy ended up with Pat's ashes, in addition to Nancy's and their old friend Uncle Bill's. For a few years, the ashes stayed at the bar. And they're all up there, and everybody come in, they're like, are these ashes? I said, yeah, they ain't gonna bother you. And then, you know, they'd be like, weird. Billy and some friends, including Donna, always talked about spreading them in the ocean. Finally, I said, guys, we gotta let these people go. We gotta, you know, let them set them free, you know. So we all finally agreed to go like a year or two ago. So what happened is we got their ashes getting ready to go. We ran the boat. And then somebody else said, well, my mother's ashes. I have my mother's ashes. Can I bring them? We said, well, yeah, I mean, why not? And then somebody else said, they bring their ashes. So we had all these ashes. And when we did, we had bags and bags and bags of other people. Just other people that, you know, didn't have a lot of family. Like Pat, eclectic, you know, group of people. So we all went and got on the boat. There was about 10 or 12 of us, and we just spread their ashes and you know, had a ceremony. And then we all came back and had lunch together on the ramp there from the bay, and it was pretty cool. Though they all said goodbye to Pat in the physical form that day, some say she still haunts the bar. Here's Donna. And that's what Pat wanted. She wanted that bar around so she could haunt it. She's still there listening. I know it. I mean, not all the time, but there are times when she makes herself known and and Billy says it. And if Billy says it, then, you know, the freaky incident happened because Billy's like flat footed, got her feet on the ground. No bullshit kind of woman. She ain't going to say this for no reason at all. I was sitting here talking to one of the bartenders. We closed up and me and him were standing there and all of a sudden the glass come flying at him. I was like, oh, my God, it's for real. And he says, yeah. And then there's this shadow they see in the basement all the time, checking them out. And I said, well, that's just Pat and him checking on you because when y'all do me wrong, she's watching you. (laughs) Whether or not Pat's ghost is keeping an eye on her, Billy has kept true to her promise of keeping the bar as it was. Cleaned up for the good because there were 30 years of uh, cigarette smoking. You could smoke in the bar then. So we painted, repainted it and cleaned up really a lot. But not really, just 
new plants and stuff like that, but I didn't change nothing hardly really at all. Well, the best part is when you put your elbow down on the bar, it didn't stick anymore. <laughs> she really cleaned the place up is what I'm saying. She really, you know, got in there and had somebody scrub it from head to toe. She um, bought new bar stools, the kind that really had four legs instead of like three and a fourth one, maybe, you know, you might fall off of it. You know, just a few essential fixes. But unlike Pat, Billy will give out the occasional free drink. That's according to Donna. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Billy's very, very generous. Yes. For Billy, the hardest part about taking over the bar was working with the bartenders. And to tell them what the new rules were, and they were not too happy to be told that, you know, now you have to do this and do that. When I put the new cash register in, they were like, oh, what are you doing that for? And I'm like, well, we need to financially have to let my account know stuff. And because Pat and him used to do cash only. Which we still did cash only, but I had to make sure everything was done right. So, and yeah, I had a lot of had a lot of feedback from the bartenders back then. Originally, Billy wasn't sure how long she would be able to keep the bar going herself. And I said, "Well, let me run it for a couple years, see what happens." But then she started getting more feedback, the positive kind from the community. And now these are gay and straight people in the community. And they all came to me and said, please, please do not close it. And I said, oh, well, I'll try. And they're like, this is our place of community. Please don't. So this is this is what started this community here. So you've got to keep it going. And I'm like, oh, that's a lot of pressure. But anyway, so I said, oh, I'll, I'll keep it going for about four or five years to see how it, how it goes, if it makes money or whatever. It's been over a decade since Billy took over the bar. And she says they still haven't started making money. But something else changed instead. And then I started liking it. I was like, you know, this is not so bad after all. And it was kind of like family, you know. It's like, it's, it's a haven. It's a refuge for people that don't have anywhere else to go or can't belong or whatever. And it's like, you know, accept them. The same thing Pat and him did, you know. Cruising is reported and produced by Rachel Carp, Jen McGinnity, and me, Sarah Gabrielli. Our theme song is by Joey Freeman. Follow us along on our road trip and see pictures at our website, cruisingpod.com, or follow us on social media at cruisingpod. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks this week to Billy, Donna, and Heather. In memory of Pat. Pat.